If you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. And uh, we will be starting in the, uh, in the, seventh, uh, in the seventh verse. Uh, this section of Scripture, the book of Judges, is a very interesting section because if you follow through the Old Testament and what happened with the nation of Israel, uh, they were in captivity in Egypt. Then uh, Moses, through uh, God's power, had them released from there. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they failed to go into the promised land because they were scared. And after 40 years, they came back again and they went into the promised land. God said, as you go into this land, you are to take it over. You're to occupy it. And so they went in, and they saw a lot of great victories, but then they had some defeats along the way. And what the people did is, is God had, had warned them, and Moses had warned them, don't worship the gods of that culture. Stay with the one true God. But what the people did is they began to intermarry within those cultures. They began to take on uh, what that culture believed. And then they began to go through this cycle of where they would rebel against God. And once they rebelled against God and they turned their back on him, then all of a sudden God brought retribution. And he would raise up foreign kings and rulers to come in and to oppress them. And then when the people finally had had enough, and they cried out to God and they repented, then God would hear their prayer and then he would raise up a judge, a deliverer, who would then come and would rescue the people and restore the people. And then as you read, the land would be good and everybody would be at rest for about maybe 40 years or more and then they'd start getting back into the cycle. And they would start rebelling against God. Once they rebelled against God, then retribution came. When retribution came and they were oppressed, after a while, they'd had enough of it. Then they cried out in repentance to God. And then God came, raised up a deliverer, and he rescued and restored them. And it goes all through the book of Judges. Okay? Well, this whole cycle starts in chapter 2 and 3. And you're introduced to the first two Judges. And... In that passage I read to you early in Hebrews 11, when it talks about all these great people of the faith, it mentioned a number of judges. But he said, you know, I'm not covering everyone. I'm just saying these are some. Well, I'm picking out some of these other judges who are incredible heroes of the faith. And there's some lessons to be learned for each one of us. And so when you start with, um, with this first judge in chapter 7, They've talked about what's happened to the people. When you get to verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. What that is, those are foreign gods. So it says they forgot the word of the Lord, and they began to serve these other gods. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim the king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served him for eight years, for eight years. Now, what God did was he treated the people just like they were pagans, and he humiliated the nation of Israel. They decided to act like pagans. He said, if you're going to act like pagans, I'm going to treat you like pagans. And I'm going to raise up another king. He's all the way from Mesopotamia. He's going to come over here, and he is going to rule you. Cushan Rishathaim. Ooh, I like that name. Cushan Rishathaim. Rishathaim. Ooh. It's like my favorite city in the world is Kathmandu. 
Just would like to say that word, don't you? Kathmandu. All right, everybody, one, two, three. Kathmandu. Ooh, that's cool. Isn't it? Yeah. I went there on a mission trip and felt like I was ready to go to heaven. I said, I've been to Kathmandu. Okay. So uh, this guy, we'll call him Cush for short. Cush was the king, and his name, that long name that he has, it means doubly wicked. Now, how would you like to be called that? That's my name, doubly wicked. Well, when doubly wicked comes in and oppresses you, that means that that's not a good time. And for eight years, they were under the, impre- the oppression of this king from Mesopotamia. Now, just want to give you, th- we're going to build on this next statement uh, a few weeks down the road. But I want to remind you, Charles Spurgeon said that God never allows his people to sin successfully. God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or will invite the chastening hand of God. The sin will either destroy you or invite the chastening hand of God. What is happening to the nation of Israel is exactly what can happen to our nation and to any nation because you'll never sin successfully. And so the Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is is a disgrace to any people. And so God operating off of this comes in verse 9, and it says that God sold the people. He sold them into this man's hand. But when the people of Israel, verse 8, excuse me, he sold them into the hand of that king. When he sold them into it, it's just like he said, okay, I'm going to give you into the hand of this man. I've raised him up. He's going to take you over. But then the same God who sold them into his hand now begins to raise up a deliverer. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othnel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Okay, now he says, I'm going to raise up a deliverer. I sold you into the hand of this man. Now I'm going to raise up a deliverer because of my compassion for you. And the man that I've chosen is a man by the name of Othnel. And he says, Othnel, who's the son of Kenaz, who's a younger brother of Caleb. Well, now, hey, during that day, if you just threw out the person Caleb, everybody knew Caleb. I mean, that's the guy everybody loves. Uh, Because I I don't want to give you all the story, but just a quick, quick highlight. Remember we said that the uh, children of Israel came out of Egypt and they went into the wilderness and they tried to get into the promised land. Uh, They sent 12 spies to go in the land to check it out. When they came back, 10 of the spies said, there are giants in the land. There's no way we can conquer it. Let's don't go in. Two said, there are giants in the land. Our God is stronger. Let's go in. That was Joshua and Caleb. And so they voted 10 to 2. They didn't go in. God said, that's fine. I'll let you wander in the wilderness for 40 years until your generation dies out. And all of you folks will die and never get into the promised land except Joshua and Caleb, your family. You will live and you will go in. For the other 10, they won't see it. Their descendants will see it, but they won't see it. So Caleb goes into the promised land. He didn't just go into the promised land. When they were going into the promised land, they were assigning locations for them to go to, and he raised his hand and says, give me the hardest assignment. He says, I'm 85 years old, but I'm as strong today as I was when I was a young pup. And so they gave him the area called Hebron where the giants were, and he went in and took them. Caleb great warrior. This guy was Caleb's nephew. So he comes from a great pedigree. 
And if you looked in Judges chapter 1, as Caleb was taking over his area, he discovered a city called Debir. And in Debir, he says, anyone who takes that city, there'll be a prize for them. We'll give this woman in marriage to them. Guess who stepped up? Othniel, the nephew, says, I'll do it. So he goes and he wins this battle and he conquers this city. So Othniel is the guy who's got an incredible pedigree. He's a warrior. He's got an amazing victory over that city. It shows that he's a leader of men because he was able to bring the army together to beat that city. And then you'll see later on that says the spirit of God came upon him. So this is guy's walking in God's spirit. I mean, he's everything you'd want for a judge. And as you read through the book of Judges, almost every judge, God will, uh, the writer will say something good about him, and then they'll also give him a character flaw. There's no character flaw ever mentioned on Othniel. I mean, this guy is ready. He is the ideal judge. And so verse 10, look what happens. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. So he calls him up, and he says, you be the judge over Israel. You be the guy that judges him. So he's starting to be a judge over Israel. And then... He went out to war, and the Lord gave him Cushan, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. I love the way he phrased that. He gave the king into his hand. Now, what God did was he took Israel, and he put it in the hand of Cushan. He let him rule for about eight years. Then he takes Israel out of Cushan's hand, and he puts it in Othniel's hand. And he says, go get him. And his hand prevailed over Cushan. And so the land had rest 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He won this this battle. And when he won the battle, the Mesopotamians were defeated. Israel lived in peace for 40 years. And he judged them. He rescued them from bondage. He served the people as a judge for 40 years. He exercised his authority in managing the affairs of the nation. And so life was great. Othniel, a guy that God put his hand on and delivered him, a superhero of the faith. Because once he lifted him up, he said, I want you to take this guy out. Now, naturally, he could say, this man's been ruling us for eight years. He's powerful. His army's powerful. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He took the step and he says, I'll do it. I will do that. So that's your first one. Well, a number of people may have heard of Othniel. But the man that you may not have heard is Ehud. That's your next one. I'm 60 years old. I've never heard a sermon preached on Ehud. And after I finish, you're going to say I know why. Okay? But you stay with me because I'm treading into the territory where no man's gone before. Are you ready? And aren't you glad you're here today? So, okay, look look what happens here. Then verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's that cycle again. Man, you would think that the influence that they had had, that they would have caught on and they would have stayed strong, but they didn't. And he said, and the Lord then, because they did evil in the sight of the Lord, rebellion, then there's got to be retribution. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he raises up this other king from Moab. Nobody likes Moab. We can't believe that he's got somebody from Moab. And then it says he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, which nobody likes those folks. And he says, and he went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. 
That is the city of Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years. So he comes in, he takes over Jericho. Jericho is a, is a very strategic site. And he sets up camp there. Here he is. 18 years they're oppressing them. He says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Okay. Now, hang on. Ehud, son of Gera. Who's Gera? We don't know. A Benjamite. Okay, tribe of Benjamin, a left-handed man. Okay, if you're left-handed, will you stand up right now? If you're left-handed, just stand up right now. Be proud of your left-handedness. Don't, uh, don't stay. Okay, let me see. Y'all keep standing. Michael, you got to get some more lefties up here in the, uh, in the choir. Okay, look around. Who else is? Sta- I'm standing. I'm left-handed. You realize that. Look around. We're in the vast majority. I mean minority. You know that. Okay, you know we're in the vast minority. While you're standing, let me tell you, let me tell you something that's kind of funny, is that Ehud is from a tribe named Benjamin. You know what Benjamin means? Son of the right hand. (laughs) How do you like that? You're a left-hander, and where are you from? Son of the right hand. What does that make you? I don't know. Okay, hold on. All right, now, let me tell you what they said about left-handedness at that day. Left-handedness was generally considered peculiar and unnatural. All right? So... Will you just look at the other left-handed person around you and say, we're peculiar and unnatural? You ready? Yeah. All right. Praise God. Y'all, sit, y'all be seated. Thank you, lefties over care. Okay. Now, left-handed. You see there's a vast minority of us that are the softballs over here that are left-handed. And most of you as right-handers have absolutely no idea how difficult our life is and how much we are discriminated against. Everybody, when you go to school, you get a spiral-bound notebook. Is that not correct? Have you ever tried as a left-hander to write in a spiral-bound notebook? Do you know where all the little spirals are? They're right there where your hand is. You little right-handers over here, just just like that. How about those three-ring binders that you get? You ever got a three-ring binder and you open it up and you're supposed to take notes in the three-ring binder? Put your pencil in your left hand and see if you can take notes with those rings over there. Doesn't happen. How about those wonderful school desks that we have? You know how they're set up when you go to college, that little desk where you put your hand right here and you're right right-handed? Be a lefty with those things where you have to contort your body in order to get around to do that. It's a hard life. And then in the early on in elementary school when the teacher says, we're going to introduce to you cartridge pins. Cartridge pins? Remember those? Put those little cartridges in there and the ink and you write it. Well, for a righty, it's great. You're just zip, zip, zip. For an upside-down writing left-hander, I go zip, zip, zip. I just smeared the whole thing over here because of my hand. And when I'm finished with that assignment, whether it be pencil or pen, I look up, and I have got pencil and pen written all over my hand right here. It is difficult. And don't even get me talking about scissors, okay? Oh, come on. How bad can it be to be a left-hander? Well, listen, and then the last, how about those little credit card things? You know, when you scan your card, and then they have that little screen that says, just sign your name. That's easy for you to say. There's a little cord about this long on this side for a right-hander. 
as a left-hander, you somehow have got to stretch the cord. Then I'm upside down. I'm sitting on here. And they look at it and say, that's a signature? As good as I can get you. As good as I can get you on that. And the very last thing is, who wants to sit with a left-hander at a restaurant? Nobody. Nobody wants to sit next to the left-hander. You see, it has been a difficult life for us. And for Ehud, he points out he's a lefty. This guy's a left-hander. So everything else going against him, the poor guy is a left-hander. However, there was a thought during that day that left-handers had an advantage in battle. And the reason is, if you're a right-hander, you would put your sword right here on your left hip because when it came time to get your sword, you do this. But if you're left-handed, you put the sword right here. And so if you're coming at me to fight me, you're getting ready to look towards my right hand, and I'm going to fool you because I'm coming around with my left hand, and you were thinking I was going over here, and he gives you an advantage. I was told, where's Jim Sharp? I think I thought I saw Jim Sharp over here. Jim, uh, when, when you, Jim plays a lot of tennis, and I remember I'm a left-hander, but I used to play a lot of tennis. Somebody said, as you're a left-hander, you've got a 5 to 10% advantage just because you're left-handed. Really, yeah. Because you're, you, usually your backstroke is your weaker stroke, your forearm is your stronger stroke. So what you do is you keep driving the ball to someone's backhand. Well, for a left-hander, what you think is my backhand is actually my forehand. So you automatically hit it to my forehand, and I'm just beating you like crazy. And I I played tennis with someone to where we finished the set, and we were two games into the second set, and we were crossing. You know how you change change over the third game of the set? You change sides. And as I walked over, he looked at me and says, you're left-handed. It took him a set and a half to realize I was left-handed. He says, you're left-handed. Just to mess with you, I'll show you what it did. Have my racket like this. I said, oh, no, 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 it's just the way you look at it. Which side of the net you're looking on? Really, I'm still (laughs) right-handed. Took him three more points to figure it out. So, uh, but there's that little bit of an advantage. So some people thought that as a left-hander, from a warrior standpoint, that, that puts you in better position. Okay, it says that God has raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera. And it says that the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king, now, of Moab. Now, what happens is when you're oppressed, you have to pay money to the oppressors. So they put together a group of people that would go and carry the tribute to the king. It could be money, could be, um, it could be items, possessions, whatever, but they bring a tribute to the king. And Eglon volunteered to be a part of this group. And he put together a devious plan and it says in verse 16, and Ed Ehud, Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. That's about 18 inches in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Okay? Now, when you go to see another king, you're probably not to bring any weapons in there. And if they did a frisk of you, they would usually just frisk your left thigh because that's where most people would have kept their sword. So he kept it on his right thigh to see if he could pass the guards, and sure enough, he did. Okay, so what this is is a great story of the bravery of Ehud and the dim-wittedness of Moabites, but that's just for another, another, another time. You'll pick up on this as you go. So he says he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, and now Eglon was a very fat man. He was a very, very fat man. So Eglon... He was a very fat man. And when Ehud 
had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, this is what he did. He he left with all his group, and they traveled a number of miles, and when they got to the city of Gilgal, he just told us, he says, guys, why don't you go on ahead? Uh, I've got to do something else. I'll be back with you. And as soon as they left, then he went back. And so he goes back to the palace, goes back to where this, this man is, and he says, I have a secret message for you. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So now it's just Ehud and the king Eglon. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. You bet he does, yeah. He said, I got a message from God for you. And Eglon was so impressed because here this Hebrew God or some other God has given a special message for him. And he was anxious to hear this. And so he arose from his seat. Anytime you hear a message from God, you feel like you need to rise from your seat. And when he did, Ehud reached with his left hand. Come on, lefties. He took that southpaw, took that left hand. He took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly. Okay? And the hilt of the sword also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of the belly and the dung came out. That means his bowels emptied. Do you want me to explain that? Do you all need... You kind of with me on that one? Okay. He takes his sword and he sticks it right through him. And it's so deep, the fat just encases it. And then he, he loses everything. Okay. Now, you say, why is that important? <laughs> Get ready. Okay. Uh, this is why no one preaches on this passage. All right, here you go. He says, then Ehud went out into the porch and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, okay, now here it is. What he did was he killed this king. Then he had to figure out how to escape. Researchers, I've read so many commentaries and different ideas, and, and people are not really certain exactly how he did. Some believe that maybe he, he locked the doors, you know, so they couldn't come in, and then he, somehow he slipped out through a roof and over the side. Even some people have said that, uh, that where he is, there is a toilet. There, there is a toilet where this man is. And that they believe that what he did was he went down kind of that sewage pipe through that in order to escape. Whatever it was, it was an amazing, a daring, cunning escape to get out. Well, so what he did is he locked the door. The servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Surely he's going to the bathroom is what they're saying. Now, why would they think that? Because the smell that was coming out, because his bowels dropped everything. A fat man, stabbed to death, bowels emptied. Do I need to explain any more? Are we okay? I'm going to go on a limb and say this sermon will be discussed at lunchtime. Uh, uh, I, oh, gosh, there's so many things. I know you're nervous, Janice. I won't. <laughs> okay. She's already shaking her head. Uh, oh, to be a Sunday school teacher again, because I could say these things, couldn't I? Oh, it was great, and I wouldn't get fired. Um, okay. So 
so what happened is, it was so funny, is that they said, truly relieving himself, and they waited till they were embarrassed. They waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, he said, you know, they're giving him some time, and they said, he hadn't come out yet. Maybe something's wrong. And it says, so they took the key and a can of air freshener, and they opened, that, I've kind of got a footnote in mine over here. Uh, they took the key and the air fresher and they opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. I mean, they're shocked. But what that did was it gave Ehud enough time to escape. These guys were just waiting. And then all of a sudden they open up and they find that their Lord has died. Then Ehud, verse 26, he escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. This has been 18 years they've been under this oppression. And, it's, and he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. He says, the Lord has already done a victory. The king is dead. Let's go and let's clean house on these people. And it's sure enough, they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land rested for 80 years. Now, let me give you some lessons from these encounters. Are you ready? Let me give you some lessons. We got a lesson from Othniel, we got a lesson from Ehud, and we got a lesson from God. Are you ready? Number one, one for each of these guys. Othniel, write this down. Spiritual and physical preparation enhance your opportunity for God to call you to do a great and challenging work. This is a long statement, but it's worth writing down. We'll keep it up on the screen for you. Spiritual and physical preparation enhance your opportunity for God to call you to do a great and challenging work work. When you look at Othniel, it says he is the ideal judge. And that is because he prepared himself. He was a warrior. He prepared himself as a warrior. He was a leader and he prepared himself as a leader. He was a man that was a spiritual man. And when God's spirit came over on top of him, he did exactly what God told him to do. And because he'd done all this preparation, he was ready for God to call him to do a great challenging work. For some of us, we keep saying, God, why don't you use me in some great adventure for you? And many times God is saying, if you could ever just complete what I have you doing right now, I've got even bigger and better things for you to do. But I'd love for you to be spiritually prepared. I'd love for you to be prepared in the gifts and talents that you have. And when you have that preparation, then God says, I can use you for even greater opportunities. Othnel the ideal judge, and God used him in an amazing way, used his talents and his gifts as a warrior and as a leader to help the people. Second of all, Ehud. What do we learn from Ehud? As the Lord leads, take risk without assurance of success. As the Lord leads, that's the key, as the Lord leads, take risk without assurance of success. In this verse of Scripture, it says, God raised up a deliverer. That was all. Ehud came up with this plan, which we believe God would have, uh, hopefully, is, is the one that, that, uh, uh, that gave him those ideas and helped direct his ways. But he used his, his gifts 
that he had. And he took a risk. And there was no assurance of success. Last week we talked about Gideon. What an amazing amount of faith that Gideon had to take 300 men to fight against 135,000. But if you remember that story, do you remember how many assurances God gave him? Remember he put the fleece out there and God answered his prayer once and he put the fleece out there again. God answered his prayer twice. And then the night before the battle, he says, come over here and listen to the Midianites talk about their dream. And this Midianite talked about it. I had a dream that, uh, that this big piece of bread rolled over us. And then some guy says, they can only be Gideon with the sword of the Lord. I mean, how much clearer does that get? So Gideon walks off and he's got a lot of assurance that we're going to win this battle. There's only 300 of us, but we're going to win the battle. I've been assured by God that we're going to win. Ehud, there was no assurance anywhere in Scripture that he was going to be successful. He took a risk. I'm telling you, he took a huge risk. Now, it may have been that he could have gone in there and maybe assassinated the king and then the guards came in and killed him. And maybe the story would be that he'd be a martyr and everybody would, uh, would say, hey, that got me energized. I don't know. Maybe he could have gone in and the guards frisked both sides of his legs and found that sword and killed him on the spot. You know, there, he didn't get that assurance at the end to say, this is going to work out. And to me, this is where most of us are. Because whenever we feel that God is leading us to take a step of faith, to stand up and to stand up for something that we think is not right. Whenever we see injustice and we feel God's called us, you need to make a stand. There's no guarantee of success. When, when, we, when we want to share a word of witness to a friend or to a neighbor, to someone that works with us, and, and there's that fear of will they reject me or will they not, there's no assurance of success. God's just saying, take the risk, will you? Or maybe when it's to try to give a word of encouragement to someone's downtrodden. And you'll be amazed that sometimes when you try to encourage someone, they come back at you with vitriol. There's no guarantee. But what God does say is that, you know, as my spirit leads you, you need to do this. You need to go and take that step. You need to go and do this. And so Ehud There's no guarantees when God leads us. I'm not saying you just go out and do something stupid. I'm saying that as God leads you, when you feel God's Spirit leading you to do something, you've you've just got to uh, go and do that. And, um, you know, I I, I just, I'll I'll save that story for another day. I heard something this past week was just, it was just amazing. But again, it was taking a risk as God leads and there's no guarantee of success, Okay. All right? But if God leads, this is what I got to do. Now, what does God tell us? God tells us two things. Number one, God's power supplies the victory as he works through willing people. God's power supplies the victory as he works through willing people. Both these stories, it was the power of God. It wasn't that, I mean, these guys were superheroes of faith, but it wasn't their faith that made this happen. It was God's power that made it happen. Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's not by our might. It's by God's spirit. That's what it is. Read that story in Judges. What did he do? The people were against God. So guess what God did? He says, I'm going to bring up someone and put you into their hand. 
Then when you cry out to me, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to deliver you by raising up a deliverer over here. And then when I raise up this deliverer, I'm going to pour my spirit into him, and then I'm going to put you into his hand. That's God. That's God who's doing it. And as I kept going over and over this week, this message, all I kept thinking of is so much easier to take steps of faith when I realize it's not my power, but it's his. And it's God's power is what will help to win the victory. And so God's power supplies the victory as he works through willing people. We just need to be willing. And the very last thing is this. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways. First thing I guess I thought of when I read through this passage. Now, Othniel. Now, that's the guy. I mean, that's, that's the judge of judges. He's everything that you'd want in a judge. Why didn't God just raise up another Othniel to be the second judge? Why did he raise a guy like Ehud rather than him? Othniel, I started thinking about it. If you put him in today's society, this guy, he's got this strong religious pedigree. He's an accomplished warrior. He's an excellent leader. He's got a solid walk with God. You look at him, he's like anchor man riding for the brand. He's a, a graduate of men's fraternity. He leads accountability groups. and uh, He's a conqueror. He's a man's man. Everybody looks at him as his leadership said in chapter 3 that a lot of the Israelites were marrying the Canaanite women, and then they were worshiping their gods, but not him. He married a good, godly woman from his same tribe. Her name was Aksa. So he marries Aksa. So he does exactly what God told him to do. I married a good Christian woman, not being unequally yoked. I married the right woman. And, and Axa, she's probably this incredible godly woman who's got, um, she's probably got autographed pictures of Beth Moore and Kay Arthur uh, right there next to her bed. Uh, she's got an uh, email address that says axa at proverbs31woman.com. And uh, I mean, you know, you see the whole couple. I mean, their kids are incredible. Uh, all the kids have straight teeth. They make straight A's. They walk the straight and narrow. I mean, it's just, it's just there. And, and you look at that and you say, now this is who God can use. And most of us, that's what we think of. And if you hear a sermon like this, superhero of faith, you go into a picture of exactly what I just described and say, well, that's who God uses Listen, folks, God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways. Ehud, who knows? Maybe he's from the hood. I don't know. But something tells me I don't see Othniel climbing down a toilet to get out somewhere. This guy is just daring enough and risky enough and crafty enough to be able to pull off what he pulled off. It's amazing. He's a different kind of person. He's left-handed. He's left-handed. He's peculiar. He's unnatural. I mean, he, there's just he's different. And what is interesting is that God uses these left-handed things many times for his ways to be accomplished, like illness, failure, deprivation, disappointment. And he uses those left-handed type of things. And he uses 
us who go through those things to use us to do great things for him. So I've got really great news for you. And that is that every person sitting here today can be a superhero of faith. You don't have to be just like Othniel. You can be Ehud. You can have all kind of things that have happened in your life. God says, I can use you. Isn't it interesting? We serve a God who uses unexpected people in unexpected ways. And the most thrilling picture of that is how he stepped out of heaven onto earth into flesh with a poor carpenter's son and a teenage mom. And he said, you will raise my son. And he brought him, came into the world to be able to die for our sins and to show us the love of God. What an unexpected way and what unexpected people did he choose. And if he can choose a Mary and a Joseph to be able to help bring his son into the world and to raise his son and then to turn his son loose for three years of ministry and to teach and tell people about who God is and the love of God and to explain to people that no matter how many good things you think you do, your righteousness is just like filthy rags and you're still so separated from a holy God, but that there has to be one major sacrifice and for Jesus to step up and say, I'll be that sacrifice. It confounds the wise that an itinerant preacher claiming to be the son of God would be willing to go to a cross and to die and to say, I am the son of God and my blood will be shed for you. And to hang on a cross for six hours and to die. Then to have his body taken down from that cross and placed into a tomb. And most of the talk around town was, well, that was, that was a good run he had for three years, but turned out he was just some crazy guy. And then on Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. And this guy they thought was the crazy misguided teacher over here all of a sudden is standing before over 500 people throughout these next 40 days saying, I'm risen from the dead. Everything I told you is true. And I have paid your penalty for your sin. And I have confounded the wise of the world. And I have shown you the incredible love of God who works through unexpected people with unexpected ways. And he takes those disciples, those same guys that ran away from him about three or four days earlier who were scared of the government. He then brings them together and says, I am risen from the dead. And every one of those men went to a martyr's death proclaiming Christ as their Lord and Savior. And those unexpected people used a lot of unexpected ways to be able to spread the gospel that we're preaching here today. Heroes of the faith. God wants to use you to be a hero of the faith. May you make that commitment to him today and say, God, whatever it takes, I want to be wide open for you to use me. No excuses. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you forgive us that um, oftentimes we look at other Christians whose gifts exceed ours and we become envious of them and their abilities and 
And we and it causes us to feel that we can't do things for you. And Father, I ask you to forgive us for as we look at Christians who have abilities that may be less than ours and we have this great sense of pride. Help us to constantly be reminded, Lord, that it is you and it is your power that provides us salvation and that gives us the strength to travel the journey that you've called us to travel. I pray each one of us today that we think about what you've done for us and to know that you loved us no matter how maybe quirky we may be, maybe, maybe how different we may be, you created us, you loved us, your son died for us. And so, Father, we pray that during this time of invitation that we will give you the honor that you deserve. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.